into a really special People Have the Power. When I started this show, I had a short wish list of artists that I really wanted on here. Right at the top of that list was the great Ani DeFranco, and she does not disappoint at all. What a pleasure to listen to Ani talk about Brittany Howard, Lizzo, Billie Eilish, why she thinks things are going to be all right in the 21st century, and much more. What a pleasure to listen to Ani. Hope you enjoy this one as much as we did. Where are you based these days? In New Orleans. Okay. Yeah. Nice. What, so where actually, are you? That's, that's so funny because I just talked with Harry Shearer this morning, who's also in New Orleans. So you are my second oh, New Orleans yes. interview of the day. Oh, yes. Cool. Yeah. What do you know? What city are you in? Long Beach, California. What, what city are you? Long oh, Beach, okay. California. Yeah. Yep. Okay, well, I'll I'll try to corroborate with with Harry. It's beautiful here right now. That's what he was saying. Now, how long have you you've lived in New Orleans for a while, right? I have lived in Nola for whew, about sixteen years. Okay. Now it, it is funny because he and I were discussing the fact the last time I was in New Orleans, I was there for a press junket. And I was there with Hilton for a story I was doing on their uh, live series, which was actually very cool. But because they set it up in a way, we did nothing but eat for the whole time. And I was like so freaking sick afterwards because I was like, well, I'm going to eat all the rich food. So what Harry was saying is that, you know, for the locals, you learn to pace it. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, you did, you, you did right, though. You did right by coming and hurting yourself. That's what one is supposed to do when they visit, so, so for sure. Before we come on to your protest songs and do or die at all this, I, I am curious, what, what are your absolute favorite New Orleans foods? Because it is one of the great food cities in the world. Oh, yeah, dude. I mean, uh, I mean, uh, what are my favorite New Orleans foods? I mean, my mother-in-law makes a fabulous gumbo um, nice. to, to hit the classics. So I don't have to go far to get my gumbo on. Um, I mean, I love seafood, you know. So at the end of the grocery store, about two blocks away in the prepared food bar is the best fried fish in the city, I swear to God. So... That's also so this is too making me, easy. <laughs> Much too easy. Yeah. This is making me so hungry. Uh, yes. But now it's interesting because now, from what I understand for the release, you actually recorded the song in Durham, North Carolina, correct? That is correct. Yeah. So what made you, uh, make, uh, what, what made you trek to North Carolina to record it versus, you know, doing it in New Orleans? Um... Yeah, it was kind of a chain of events. I, um, you know, I was trying to figure out how to finish a record during a pandemic. You know, um, my bass player lives out in California. My drummer is here in New Orleans. But, um, you know, everything was shut down. Uh, and I had been talking with Brad Cook, who lives in North Carolina, in Durham, uh, who is sort of one of the Boney Bear sphere uh, crew, um, the sort of 
extended family uh, that I met when I was out there um, in Wisconsin at the Iver Fest last year. Okay. And so Brad and I talked about working together. And then so I was talking to him saying, how am I going to do this? And he said, come to North Carolina for six days. If you'll get on a plane, I'll put the band together. We'll make a record. So that's what I did. I put on my little mask and I went to Brad's house and he put the band together of his compadres who, you know, sort of are, are hiding out there in the woods around Durham. And they all crept out of the woods in their masks and we recorded for actually five days, made the record. So this is actually a full album. It is a full album. Yeah. Uh, and the, one of my favorite aspects of it is that it was basically the, the bed tracks were recorded in two days with me and the drummer. It was me and Jan for two days and we just tracked the album down. And then, you know, the third day, the percussionist came in the fourth day, the keyboardist came in the fifth day, the, the saxophonist and flautist came in. And then beyond that, uh, you know, there was some string overdubbing out on the West coast um, that happened vicariously, and then I just pushed it all together. So when does the full album come out? Do we know? In December. Okay. Yeah. But but obviously you felt that it was important to get this song out pre-election. Yeah. Yes, indeed. I mean, I yeah. I I would I would love it if the whole record was out now, but it was a mad, mad rush, uh, to get it this far, this fast. So, yeah. I love that though, because it's, I've talked to so many artists during the pandemic and it's changed things so much in so many respects. And a lot of artists though have really enjoyed the freedom that comes from not following a cycle of album tour and have found a creative voice. And I love the fact that you did this whole album in five days because Springsteen did his whole new album in five days pre the pandemic, of course, but I think there is something for that immediacy, that that sort of, you know, going back to that live feel and that immediacy, you know, so for you, talk about the rush. And also, I mean, again, your bass player's in California. So did your bass player come out or did you pay, play with, you know, the musicians that Brad put together? And if so, how was that for you playing with all new musicians? Yeah, it was... It was wild. Uh, mostly, um, as it as it happened, I mean, I think Brad was sort of gonna maybe play bass on the record, but he kind of didn't <laughs> when I was there. <laughs> he was more about interfacing between me and Jan for the two days that you know the drummer and I tracked together. So, so when I left there, I had a record without bass you know, with sort of all the basic building blocks except for bass. So um, then I just uh, got my man, Todd, uh, who I've been touring with and playing with for the better part of 20 years to overdub the bass along with the string section out there in Eugene. Um, yeah. Amen to the just performing your records old school. You know, it's been, you know, the, the age of Pro Tools, leads us all into, you know, a, a very different process, but fuck it. It was just, it was very nice for me to go back to basics and I'm glad I'm not alone in that trend. 
Well, you know, that's such an interesting thing because, I mean, that speaks to a much larger, larger issue, which is, you know, I, I think as you deal with this pandemic and all the things that have come with it, you know, people have more of a craving for human contact, for analog, for all these things. And it's like, you know, I mean, look, what's the hottest freaking, you know, movie in the world right now is the Social Dilemma documentary, which I admit I haven't watched it because I already know that social media sucks and is only a necessary evil, you know? So it's like, you know, but it's fascinating. I think that, you know, it's interesting using music as a metaphor for the fact that people are just burnt out on the digital and, and all of that. Are you finding that? And, and for you, you know, talk about then the rush you got of, of playing with, this is kind of what I was getting at, you know, I mean, playing with new musicians who you haven't had that experience with before, because it's always, it's always, look, I've talked about this with bands who've been together for 40 years. Anytime you can bring new blood in, it just changes things up because everybody has their own process. Everybody works in their own way. Yeah, it was great. It was great. I mean, I love my band, my uh, drummer and bass player that I've been working with for a bunch of years and touring with, and you know, they're family to me. Um, so it was, sort of unexpected and on a whim that I would go record my record with a bunch of dudes I don't know. But um, it was very enlightening. I learned a lot, you know, and I really, I mean, and luckily for me, all those musicians skulking around Durham are just badasses, as absolute badasses. So it it was very exciting to get the opportunity to sort of interface with a new, a new crew. And, um, yeah, uh, it was, it was, it was a thrill. It was a thrill. I feel really honored by the experience. And I think, you know, if I'd have gone in with my dudes, we'd have done the natural thing without thinking about it, which is sort of, play the songs like we do on stage, like we do live. But what happened in North Carolina was, you know, there was no assumptions. They were coming in cold, you know, and trying to play along with this chick in a mask and her little songs <laughs> and, you know, get their head around what the scene was. So the process became like really breaking it down to basics. And in retrospect, I feel like I really learned something through that, which is don't walk in the studio and play the song like you do live necessarily. It might work great live. And that might make a lot of sense when you're out there, you know, in the elements. But what happened was, you know, I found myself tracking my songs with a drummer that was often like just boom, you know, just like the most epically simple metronomic straight, you know, my drummer Terrence that I play with, he and I are always swinging around each other and dancing around, you know, and doing our little dance and playing our little games together and which I freaking love. And I was a little panicked at first, like, whoa, I'm just, venting my spleen over a metronome, you know, <laughs> like, is this really, is there, am I, is it? But then lo and behold, the epic sort of simplicity that Jan approached 
my tunes with and the bed tracks just being wide open. What, what happened was Jan was just here, like a, like a little, you know, marker in the sand. And, it, and what I learned was that, wow, that gives me all kinds of freedom, all kinds of room to move around and leave so much room, you know, as each little element got brought in, but still had breathing room around it. And, you know, I think that we, you know, we made a better record than I would have if I hadn't rethought everything from the ground up, you know, with a whole bunch of new people questioning what ground, what ground up, up? Should we, should we go up or should we go ground sideways or, you know? Well, see, what's so cool about that, though, by the way, too, is that, you know, then when eventually when this is over, whenever this pandemic ends, you know, and you play the stuff live with your, you know, familiar band, your band that you've been with forever, you know, it's like then you can bring those elements in. And, you know, like, that's one of the cool things, like talking with musicians about, like when you play with different musicians, that's what I was getting at with the new blood is it it, it brings in stuff that then you learn and you can bring back into your familiar environment. Yeah, very much, very much. I mean, I feel so blessed by Jan and, and Phil Cook, who played keyboards on the record. It's just like, wow, I miss him every day since that session. It's like, I just want you to be next to me playing piano, please, because that was the best two days of this pandemic. Yeah, it was really a strange blip in a long, isolated time, you know, to to be, you know, jamming with these guys for a few days and then back to, you know, desolation. Yeah. Desolation row, as Dylan would say. Yeah, I was, <laughs> I was stopping quotes short of the <laughs> Dylan quote, but thanks for <laughs> finishing my sentences already. <laughs> now, let's see with, um, it's funny. So I'm so curious, lyrically and thematically, does the record, the rest, I can't talk today, but does the rest of the record kind of fall in line with do or die or was that just something that you know was an urgency to get i mean literally the song is do or die so there is an urgency to it to get out pre you know the election well you know there's the usual on mix of personal political blurry lines blurry line you know it all it all resonates you know and i very much feel like i'm for better or worse always in step with my society like my society is imploding oh wow so am i coincidentally you know and so there's you know there's a lot of uh, reckoning that uh, i mean i just feel like i've i'm always a reflection of the greater circumstance you know my personal life is just a, a, a is just a mirror so I think that that sort of comes through my songs um you know revolutionary love is the name of the record and um that's another I mean I guess you could call it political song um maybe you'd call it a spiritual song I don't know but it's it's the centerpiece of the record for me because it the the ideas the 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 feelings, the words in it kind of tie together all the political shit and the personal shit, you know, in that I'm just, I'm trying to achieve 
you know, forgiveness and transcendence? Like, what if the worst thing that could ever happen happens? Then what do you do? Now where do you go? You know, you can't, you can't leave the, well, I guess you can leave the planet. <laughs> you, can, <laughs> you can choose to bail. You can't really kick anybody else off the planet. You have to, you have to figure it out where to go from here. So I guess that's sort of the place that a lot of the songs are coming from, whether they're talking about, you know, little me or something bigger. You know, that's so interesting that you say that in terms of, you know, it's the usual Ani mix of personal and political. And I got your song choices and we'll come on to those in a second. But that's always something that fascinates me is, is you know, because I mean, look, what's well, one thing I've realized from talking with so many musicians about this, great songs, whether protest songs or personal songs, the best writers do both. And they mix them often. And it's funny, I've always been such a big John Lennon fan, for example, because I think he did such an amazing job of making the macro micro and vice versa. So for you, I'm just curious, are there artists, I, I, like I said, I got your songs, but artists that you really admire for the way that they were able to bridge those two worlds together and create a sort of personal touch? And it's even like I think of a song like, I mean, well, I, I mean, obviously, Joni is at the top of the list. But then you think of a song like Neil Young, Needle and the Damage Done, which is, you know, a heroin song, but it's just like, it's so first person, you know? So for you, who are those artists that, that really, you know, sort of are the template for being able to bridge those two worlds and make it relatable in a way that everybody can understand it? I mean, John Prine propped, popped to mind right away. I just adore John and his writing, which is so profound on so many levels. I mean, they're very vivid, very personal, immediate, tactile stories, you know, that you can, they're right there in arm's length to touch, but they speak to very big things, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, there are so many, geez whiz, I'm not, I'm not great at pulling names uh, it's all good. I mean, I have your list ahead of time, but I was yeah, just curious right. because, you know, like I say, it's since you mentioned the personal and political, and that's very much like a skill set that I admire and appreciate because, like I say, it's not, you know, there's, I, I think there's, I mean, it's funny talking to people, that's not easy to write a good protest song. You know, it's, it actually is a very, it's like, you know, it's funny. I mentioned I was interviewing Harry Shearer this morning. It's not easy to be funny. It's really not. It is a skill set for sure. You know, and yeah. writing a good protest song is. So take me through a little bit of the, the sort of the impetus for Do or Die and how that came about. And, and, you know, just sort of having that, you know, recognizing that urgency of, of you know, informing people like, <laughs> dude, literally it is. Like, I mean, if you, if you fuck this up, we're, we're, a lot of people are not going to make it. There's 200,000 plus people dead already. So, you know, it's not hyperbole. No, indeed. I wish I could say I was being dramatic. Yeah, just literal. I mean, um, yeah, I was on tour on the West Coast in February. I believe contacting COVID, though I never had a test. But boy, was I sick for longer than I usually get sick. A bunch of us got sick and feverish on that tour. Oh, okay. Uh, but, uh, you know, I had this poem, you know, just uh, in my journal that I was pushing around and I 
did what I often do when I'm on tour, which is just start pulling shit out of my journal and jamming it, jamming it on stage and, you know, throwing it against the wall, seeing what sticks, you know, and I felt I wanted to speak to the political moment since I was out there engaging with people. Um, so I just started, you know, just in a sound check one day, I came up with that kind of guitar groove and I was like, you know, you know, getting my dudes to play along. And we just started improvising around the poem and it kind of developed on the road. And instantly, you know, when I started playing it in front of people, everybody was like, nah, bring it on, <laughs> you know? So I didn't, uh, I didn't spend too much time sort of overthinking it or trying to, I, I was just like, all right, well, here, here it is then, I guess, straight from my journal, straight from my spleen, you know, to the, to, to the hot wax, you know, that's pretty much, it just seemed to work. There was an immediacy in that. I wrote a bunch of this stuff on this record, uh, on that February tour, actually, you know, just, I tend to write on tour cause I got kids. So tour is my vacation. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> that's so funny. You yeah. said that. I remember Dave Grohl once telling me like jokingly, but only half jokingly, like, oh, sometimes I'll book a Foo Fighters tour just so I can get some sleep. Yes. Amen. <laughs> Amen, Dave. See, yeah. now, this is funny, though, too. This is interesting, because I just got to interview Chuck D last week, and we were talking about this with the title oh, track. Yeah. And, yeah, he's awesome. But yeah. it's what you were saying about, so Do or Die was written in February, right? And the title track of, of their new album, What You're Going to Do When the Grid Goes Down, was written four months ago. And what's interesting is just as, you know, so that was written in May, May to September, February to September, it's, it, these songs feel so much more alive and relevant the closer we get to the election. It's funny. I mean, even in, in February, things were really fucked up. But in February, when things were fucked up, we had no idea how, you know, damaged they were going to get as we get close to this election. So it's interesting for you. Did the songs take on a little bit of a sense of prophecy? Oh, they kind of always do. I mean, not to, uh, you know, paint myself as a prophet, but I swear, I that's been my whole life in songwriting is often writing stuff and going, what's that about? And then six months later going, oh, that's what it's about. You know, I mean, I just feel like we all... I mean, to me, it's just evidence that we are all aware time is not linear, you know, and we know, we know things in the quote future just as intimately as we know things in the past. We just maybe not, are not conscious of them. But of course, when you're making art, that is, you know, when it's flowing, it's a connection with the unconscious, the, um, you know, or the hyper-conscious, beyond your conscious thoughts, you're, you're drawing from somewhere else. So it makes sense to me that this has always felt this way, you know, that songs come true in a creepy way. I mean, yeah, when I was on tour, and one, another song on the record is called Contagious, you know, and it's, and the refrain in the song, that shit's contagious, just stay away, that shit's contagious. This was before COVID was... <laughs> 
technically on the radar, you know, I mean, it was happening in China, but, or wherever, all, it was happening, I'm sure, all over the West Coast, where I was, but um, we didn't have the language for it, but I was writing that song and singing that refrain every night, you know. That's so interesting, it's funny, so, before we come on to your protest songs, this is really fascinating because I've talked about this with so many songwriters. And, you know, are there songs that you look back on then? And it's especially interesting because I remember having this conversation with Jackson Brown, who I adore. And, right, he wrote a song like These Days when he's 16. And it's kind of like, how do you have that depth when you're 16? And, you know, you've written for over 25, 30 years. So it's like, are there songs that, that you go back now in your catalog and look at and you're amazed at, at how prophetic they turned out to be to your life. And maybe it was something that it wasn't six months later. Maybe it's something that turns out 20 years later or things that you have a different appreciation for because, you know, there's stuff that now you're, you're a different person. You have a whole life since then. So you can almost hear those songs like you're from the point of view of a fan versus, you know, being too hypercritical like an artist. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's all kinds of, boy, when you leave that many breadcrumbs, you can, it's like there's, <laughs> there's a lot of evidence of where you've been and who you've been and what you thought about it and um, how you've grown and what is the through line, you know, how, you ha how you're just exactly the same as that 19-year-old who wrote that tune and how you're not. And so there's a lot. There's a lot there, you know, it's, you know, some of it's kind of humorous, like, you know, you write a, a couple dozen songs about this issue that you have with everybody else and you realize, wow, what's the common denominator <laughs> of all of these songs, Ani? You know, oh, okay, maybe I have an issue with myself. Um, you know, I mean, sometimes I look back and I'm surprised, you know, because I am so different. My life is so different. My consciousness is so different. Um, I just like when I, I wrote a memoir, you know, I wrote a book a couple of years ago and I re-recorded a bunch of old songs to come out with the book, you know, songs that kind of came up in the book and stuff, just a musical accompaniment. And, and when I was record re-recording these songs from 20 30 years ago i was really struck uh, for the first time like uh, how many of them were about survival about you know from the perspective of prey you know um about you know just yeah like because i feel i think i i am much stronger and safer now than i was when I was 18 and on my own in New York and, you know, just scrapping it out, trying to stay alive, trying to find room for myself, trying to, you know, so it was like, whoa, there was a, you know, and, and, and there's a, like a line in one of my songs from when I'm 19, you know, something like, you know, self-preservation is a full-time occupation. That's what I looked back at those songs and it was like, wow, it really was for you, wasn't it? Yeah, I guess for young women on their own, like that's, that's exhausting. Well, I forgot, you know. So it's interesting for you then, are there particular songs, one or two, that, that now you have that, you know, deeper appreciation for that you feel like just resonate with you in a very different way? Because when you look back on them, you, you know, like you look at them and, and you're surprised by, you know, 
the content or the songs or the song structure or whatever. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of surprises. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of moments um, that I guess, you know, kind of flowed back in the day when I got out of the way and the song came through, um, you know, with clarity. And then there are more moments when that did not happen, you know, in, in, in totality. You know, there's a lot of, I was a very impatient person for most of that journey, you know. So the song either just worked or, uh, or it didn't all the way and whatever, I was on to the next thing, you know. So there's, there's a lot of songs I look back on and I go, wow, you know, if I had the sort of patience or the, if I had the ability to slow down and step away and come back and you know, think about it a little more. I could have written my way all the way to a good song, but instead I got two good verses and then a bunch of weird shit around it, you know, and there's a lot of that, you know, so I, I have a lot of regrets of mm, thwarting my own process, you know, not having the ability to sort of stick to it all the time. It's so funny though that you say that. I mean, th when you think about it, though, it's it's funny. I mean, you say, "Oh, if I hadn't been impatient, what young person isn't fucking impatient?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. What, I mean, you know? it's the power of youth, ain't it? Yeah, in a way. Yeah. So let's come on to your protest songs and, and, you know, take me through a little bit of you know. What I also like to always do is talk about how those songs then inspire you or your own writing. So, I mean, we'll start with the Brittany Howard. And I like the fact, too, you chose stuff that no one else has chosen. And you actually, I always love this as a fan, when people pick stuff that I was not expecting, it gets me excited because I'm like, okay, like, I don't even know what this, I don't even know this joy, you know? So, like, I'm excited by that. So, let's start with the Brittany Howard 13th century medal. Yeah, yeah, cool. I mean, I just love all things Brittany. She's just so incredible and love her, you know, solo effort, the re the, and, um, yeah, that, that tune, I don't have my list in front of me, but which song did I pick? You picked Brittany Howard, oh, 13th, 13th century. Yeah. Metal. Right. That rant. Yeah. It's like such an epic rant, you know, distorted vocal and just this, you know, it's a spoken, you know, I mean, I don't even know if you call it a song per se, but I have a lot of this kind of thing that comes out of me so I can totally relate. And it's just, it's like a manifesta, you know, but it just works. It just works so well. I mean, it's, you'd think for the barrage of sound that is in that recording and the, and the sort of, you know, the in-your-faceness of the distorted vocal that you you would tire of it or that you'd want to step away, but I don't, I just, I just want to put it on repeat. You know, there's something about the deep sincerity and openness that she expresses all that, that just, it's like, Oh, bring it on. I want to step closer to that song. So it's interesting for you, you know, and especially since it's a more recent song, when you hear that song, it's funny, then when you go back into Revolutionary Love and the tracks on that, do you hear a direct influence of that, of Britney's 13th century metal? Well, I hadn't thought of that. I don't really do that with myself, you know? <laughs> Look yeah. at myself and go, oh, what are my influences? Who knows? Who knows? I don't know, and I don't really care. <laughs> That's for others to 
to to decide, I guess. But I don't know. I mean, I, I, I do love Brittany and, and I hope that the sort of, uh, you know, just fully embodying her voice and the energy that drives it, you know, I hope that is an influence on me. That's something I really, you know, sort of setting myself free, you know, through my voice. That's one of my favorite things for sure. And, and, and it is hard to hold on to it. It's a thing that's hard to hold on to because so many things distract or muddle or get in the way. So getting back to that primal release state, you know, I've, I, it, it oddly, it, you'd think it would get easier, but it doesn't. It gets harder, you know, as, as your life and your adult blah blahs complicate everything, you know. So, yeah, maybe Brittany helped set me free. It's so funny, of- by the way what you say about, you know, you don't think about your influence. I, I joke about this with artist friends all the time. And it's like, yeah, you really, as an, as an artist, you don't think about these things until asshole journalists come along and ask you these questions that, you know, you <laughs> never have to think about. Yeah. But it's always fascinates me too, because look, I look at it this way, right? Writing is very much a subconscious thing. It taps into these things and it's only when they're done. And especially this is interesting because you wrote a lot of the stuff in a whirlwind in February and then you recorded it in a whirlwind, you know, in five days. So look, when you're doing that, you have no concept of what the record is about. Absolutely not. It's only when you can go back and revisit it that then you have kind of a sense of it. So for you, I'm curious, you know, are there things in the record then that, that really surprise you? Oh, I don't know yet. In fact, I would say for me, it's going to take about 20 or 30 years. When I was writing that book that I mentioned, that was when I finally, and I had to sit down for two years and think about the past, like the deep, dark past, before all those things started to reveal themselves. You know, I mean, and I think the amount of sort of energy and like sort of dissecting myself and like, oh, wow. Yeah, I listened to a lot of Suzanne Vega, didn't I? Whoa, I, (laughs) you know, and it and it 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 was only like 30 years later and two years of sitting there staring off into space to go, oh, I'm made of that and that and that. Oh, and look, I forgot about that you you know you 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 ingest these things and you shit them out and you keep going like you know the the you just keep migrating and you don't you're not you know sort of going in the laboratory and dissecting the poop and going what's in it you know so for me yeah ask me in 20 years what the influences are on this record (laughs) all right I love that, by the way, too, because it's funny. I just interviewed Lenny Kravitz yesterday for his memoir, and we were talking about that. And I mean, look, when you do a book, it taps into things that you just, you know, it's a whole, whole different thing. And, and you know, it's fascinating. And, and the stuff that you learn, because again, the writing being, a, you know, subconscious. So, all right, let's go to your next protest song, Why We Build the Wall, Anais Mitchell. Oh, yeah, Anais. She's, um, you know, been a compadre of mine a long time. You know, Hades Town. You know, I was part of the Hades Town journey, as were many. Um, you know, this sort of thirteen-year journey from a little pile of songs coming from Aeneas's 
house in Vermont and a little regional theater group to frickin' Broadway, you know, but again, talk about the, the premonition factor of songs, you know, why we build the wall, this song that came long before the Trump administration, sorry, I'm going to barf those words out. I mean, it just couldn't hit the nail harder on the head. And it was more than a decade before that nail, you know, got driven into our society. So it's just, it's so profound, you know, it's just so profound to me. And it's just an epically cool song. I, I have played it live a little bit recently, although I have not, nobody's played live recently. When I was, when people played live, I was, um, you know, sharing that song. And it's so, it's so cool to, you know, the subtlety with which it expresses its point of view, because, you know, the point of view is from the patriarch, from the overlord, from the dictator, explaining why um, his, you know, control over your life and um, why the sacrifice of many for the few is necessary. But you just sing it, you know, the singer sings the song straight as in, this is for your own good, my children, and I'll explain why. Which is not something I often do in my, I'm just like, epically sincere, and I'm singing okay. from my, you know. So to embody the voice of the dictator and start singing, you know, that song is like, a t is, is a delicious mind fuck, you know, to pull on the audience. And then it really, you know, it really kind of leaves you reeling. Um, Anyway, it's great, great, great tune, part of a great, great show. <laughs> That's funny. It's funny, as you're talking that story about, you know, writing from the point of view of the dictator, I was thinking of, since you mentioned her now, she's in my head. I absolutely love Suzanne Vega and the song Queen yeah. of the Soldier, which is one of the, to me, that's one of the best songs ever written. Oh, you know? awesome. Yeah, and that point, you know, because again, it's written from the point of view of the soldier, but the soldier has to get into the queen's mindset to understand you know, that dictatorship and how fucked up it is. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I don't want to keep you too crazy long. So let's go to your next one, Tempo by Lizzo. I love the fact that you chose this one too, especially because a lot of people have not been picking. I think when people think of protest songs, they tend to think of more classic songs, but you know, so anytime someone like Michael Kiwanaka, who's amazing, was on the show and he picked um, Solange's Don't Touch My Hair for personal reasons. Um, he also picked a Kendrick song. All right. And then uh, the chicks were on and they picked her, I Can't Breathe. So anytime someone picks a new artist, I think it's awesome. So what was it about Tempo by Lizzo that was special to you? Uh, again, Lizzo, just like, oh, what is wrong with Lizzo? Nothing, absolutely <laughs> nothing. She's just so epic in every way. And Lizzo and Missy Elliott, forget about it. We can all go, we can all die happy, <laughs> you know? And the song, you know, it's just... You know, just that energy of two, like, really powerful babes just pushing back against patriarchy, pushing back, just just slamming down, like, body shaming and whatever, somebody, somebody's idea of pretty or what, you know, just, who cares, you know, just 
it's so above all of that. So like sassy slays all of that. Just, you know, it's like really, really liberating as, you know, her voice just is every time she opens her mouth. Well, you know, that's really interesting because I'm a big fan of Shirley Manson and I got to talk to her maybe a couple of, well, I've talked to her many times over the years, but we were talking about this maybe last year, although time blurs together, of course, especially in COVID, you know, it's like, what year day is it? But we were talking, so she did a performance with an organization in LA called Girl School where Fiona Apple came out and joined her. And in the last few years, Shirley has become very much a feminist icon and is, is very outspoken. And we talked about for her how much she appreciated having, you know, Fiona Apple come out and as she put it, just having more voices in the fight. So for you, who've been, you know, speaking about feminism and been so open about it for so long, you know, and, and such an advocate and such a powerful person for it, how much satisfaction, how much joy do you get to see these new artists like Lizzo who come out and just to have so many more allies in the fight? Oh, just, it's just the best. It's the best. It's the best feeling. Yeah. is. It's weird. I, I I mean, I remember when Beyonce went on tour and, you know, feminism is in big lights behind us, you know, in the back. And and I was asked by so many journalists in this sort of goading way, like to undercut her. I, I That was the vibe. Like, yeah, what do you think about Beyonce saying feminism with her booty shake? And I'm like, wow, you just want a cat fight, don't you? Like, what is what is up with that? Like, it's beautiful. It's, it's absolutely beautiful that any, for me, any woman who's going to claim the F word, (laughs) you know, when so, you know, I I want every woman who believes in their own right to self-determination to call themselves a feminist. And so therefore that's going to look so many different ways. And the, the, the more diverse, Uh, the rainbow, the better, you know? So I'm, yeah, it's really thrilling to have young women, especially because, you know, I mean, I, I'm an old lady now. And uh, since my generation, there has been several generations of women who have gotten off the boat of using the F word. And I think if you can't say a word, you can't, embody the concept you don't respect the meaning you know we got one word in the english language that says you know women should have rights and opportunities equal to men and if you can't even bring yourself to stand behind it what does that say you know so there were in my estimation lost generations of women who were made to feel who who did not uh, who shied away from it for whatever reason. So it's very thrilling to me to see young women embrace it. So funny. The reason I smiled when you said that about people wanting a cat fight is because I'm a journalist. They didn't want a cat fight. They wanted clickbait, you know? They, they just wanted, they were just looking for the cheap sensationalistic headline. Right, you know? right. So it's interesting for you. I, I mean, besides Lizzo, are there one or two artists that you feel like really embody that, that, that you really, you know, just enjoy watching the way that they handle themselves, not just from a musical standpoint, but in terms of, you know, sort of carrying on that torch and passing it on to new generations. 
Well, I mean, I have a 13-year-old daughter, and she has been listening to Billie Eilish before any y'all. <laughs> like, <laughs> I feel like I was I was hip to Billie Eilish before she hit the the radar, and she has been listening to her ever since. Like, I swear, my daughter is in headphones when she is not sleeping, and if you pull it off far enough, you will probably still hear Billie Eilish. And um, I love the way she carries herself. I think she's incredibly self-possessed for as young as she is. She's riding this crazy roller coaster, but she is doing it so gracefully for, a, you know, a freaking teenager. It's astounding. And, and, you know, she's just obviously such a smart, self-possessed young gal. And I, I just really respect her. Uh, there, there are many, 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 you know, it's, I mean, uh, I think the 21st century is going to be I, we're going to be I because, you know, I think that the experiences of women are seen and acknowledged by men on a scope that is unprecedented and women see themselves and acknowledge themselves and, uh, and, and I just think it, I think it really bodes well for getting out of here. You know? Well, fingers crossed you're right, because first step of getting out of here is getting out of this fucking administration, so. Yeah. Have I mentioned? <laughs> All right, let's come on to your last two songs. So. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, no. You go ahead. No, I was just going to say, because again, I don't want to be too selfish with your time. So with the last two, um, the first one is The Joy by Resistance Revival Chorus. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's the first single. Um, Righteous Babe is releasing uh, the Resistance Revival Chorus's new record, um, and it's not all the way out yet, but Joy is. And it's an old gospel song. Um, I forget the name of the woman who penned it, but, you know, the chorus just sings you know, liberation music and just seeing a bunch of gorgeous women singing together and, you know, supporting each other and feeling each other and feeling themselves, that alone is, is, is you know, feels like a revolution. So, um, you know, all of their music is like that. But this is the first song that's out from this terrific new record. And so I just wanted to yeah, just wanted to speak to them and their, you know, their music that's coming out soon. Nice. When does that album come out? Uh, oh, gee whiz, as you'd think I could answer that. But <laughs> like next month or in a couple of months, you know, this this fall as well. We got a real, real busy season at Righteous Babe. It's dizzying. <laughs> nice. Last track, I Can't Breathe by Bruce Dixon and Alex Patrice. Uh, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so yeah, I mean, that that's that comes on a, a a record called "Long Time Gone" by the Prison Music Project, and it's a record that I personally worked on for six years. It was about ten years uh, the, uh, in process from. Um, my uh, friend Zoe Bookbinder, who was doing, you know, making music in prison, you know, doing workshops for four years and um, gathered a bunch of writing from incarcerated writers, artists, 
and then came to me with this project. Can we make this into a record? It took, you know, and, and we just, it, it was this epic, epic project that finally came out this year. It's, you know, um, and uh, this is, so this track, you know, getting back again to the theme of our little interview of like the premonition, I Can't Breathe, you know, this song, well, it's a, basically a freestyle. It's a freestyle rap that um, was, that this guy, Bruce Dixon, Sincere, he goes by Sincere. He just flowed, you know, baby shell dog, you know, Alex was beating out a, you know, beat on a desk, you know, Zoe recorded it with a phone, you know, but this is a track on the record because it's just so powerful and it's just sincere you know freestyling from his spleen uh at the time it was um you know it was the, the, the it was a, a reaction to you know just one of the many one of the infinite instances of police brutality and um murder and so anyway the fact that this record again finally came out as you know people are taking to the streets in unprecedented numbers you know to fight white supremacy and try to change the game once and for all you know it's just so beautiful and you know sincere was so gratified to be a part of this although he is still in prison you know and his voice you know you can imagine your voice is very, very muffled when you are in prison. It is very hard to be heard or seen uh, in this world. And um, so the fact that we were able to release this record at this time and put that track out there as a single, which is something he just vented, you know, um, extemporaneously one day in the, in the, you know, meeting room, you know, it's just really gratifying to, help facilitate, you know, these very disempowered people, you know, to, to claim some power, you know, in this fight and to be a part of it. And so anyway, I just, I think it's, it's a chilling, it's a chilling track and it's completely freestyled. Yeah, it's amazing. And we'll wrap up in a second is as you were telling the story about the song, I remember now seeing you in the 90s when you played the Dead Man Walking Benefit at the Wiltern with Tom Waits, because I remember every single thing Tom Waits did because my favorite songwriter who ever lived. And it's amazing that, you know, this is a theme that 30 years later, you're still, you know, doing this, this, you know, with people in prison unjustly, you know, trying to speak for themselves. And it's amazing when you look through your work and especially because, you know, we talked about the book, I'm sure there are common themes and causes that you find that have resonated throughout your entire life. So are there one or two that, that really, as you go through and you see, and again, cause that's a, a show you did in, I want to say 1991 may have been 92, you know, and here it is 2020 coming up on 30 years of that show and still fighting for prisoner rights. Yeah. Well, when I was 18, my best friend went to law school and he started getting into criminal, you know, defense and he started interning at Death Penalty Resource Center and the, you know, Roxbury Defenders, Public Defender's Office and this and that and the other. And I, very young, got a window into the criminal injustice system. And once you 
I think a lot of people have the luxury of not knowing, not having any direct connection to what's happening to huge, huge populations and communities of people. But once you know, it, it, there is nothing okay about it, about any of it. I mean, mass incarceration is a human rights abuse on a global scale. And it, uh, you know, so I have had no choice but to be involved in the struggle against it ever since I had my eyes open, you know, as a young person. So, yeah, it's taken many forms um, and continues to. I'm actually writing a play right now with a bunch of incarcerated people. And it's, it's about restorative justice, which is something that I became aware of much more recently in life, uh, much further down this, this path. But I think restorative justice, it's a whole alternative modality to our current criminal justice system. And I encourage anybody to, to look it up and explore it. It's, it's, it is a revelation. And it's also, of course, very ancient. It's a very ancient way of um, dealing with violence and trauma and uh, truth and reconciliation Cool. Well, is there a timeline for the play? Well, we're supposed to have our first performances in January, so I am shedding right now. I'm shedding. It's actually a musical, too, so there's songwriting involved and col many collaborators, and yeah. Nice. Well, I mean, we've covered a lot. Is there anything that you want to add I did not ask you about? No, thank you. You're, you're amazing for this being your... 20th interview of the day. Oh, it's only Thanks. the second one today. It's the 168,000 this month, but they're all fun. And they're all, and like I said, I'm a fan, you know, we've spoken once before for Rolling Stone years ago. So, you know, but again, I go back to seeing you in, in the nineties and my ex-wife, who's still one of my best friends is she gets all the credit for turning me on to you. She was a massive, 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 massive fan. <laughs> so, Oh yeah. Cool. You you are one of her heroes. So, you know, and in fact, I just talked to her this morning. So, you know. Cool. Yeah. Well, yeah. tell her from me. I will. Thank you so much for your time. Always right. a pleasure. And yep. Have a good one. Thanks. All right. You too. Bye. Bye. Hey, this is Steve Balton. You have been listening to People Have the Power with special guest Ani DeFranco. 